You are listening to Spacetime Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Dude, where's my car? Where's your car, dude? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! scientists <laughs> they do that's called intelligent design and that's kind of why the bankruptcy of, of this move I mean it's and again to bring this back to the, the thing we we're discussing that's it's immediately obvious when people call intelligent design a science yeah that it's not a science there's nothing scientific about intelligent design but then uh, it gets so it's you know but then it gets shit canned for just being bad well what do you mean by that well, look. I if you enter, if you enter the playing field, science. Pardon me. I think it gets shit canned because it's not a science. I think it's bad science. It's, so, like, um, there's two things that go on in this domain. One is you try to insulate your claims by saying, "Oh, it's not even scientific. It's 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 uh, it's faith, or or even or we're just expressing our emotions. We're not even trying to make claims about the world." So there's this insulation move, and then there's this other move where you just say, "Like, oh yeah, it's a science." We're doing science, and I think um, what if if you want to if you want to do science, then you no longer get to insulate yourself, and now you have to like come up with evidence, and you got to submit yourself to like experiments and and peer review and and right. replicability. But, um, they, but they don't do that. I mean, the closest person who tried that, I guess, is Dombowski, or I don't know how to say his name, Dombowski, Dombowski, something, William Dombowski, or the irreducible complexity guy. Um, yeah. The yeah. irreducible complexity stuff, I think, is about as close as you get to it connecting to empirical stuff. Right, and then it, you know, on empirical grounds, it's just crap. Um, I don't know. The I, I guess I, in certain moods, I see irreducible, irreducible complexity as a as a challenge. Uh, but you know, I, I kind of, I have issues about evolutionary theory. Um, uh, not that I don't think it's true or anything, but I wonder about it as a theory. And in particular, my worries stem from stuff like Fodor concerns. Really? I thought you uh, were very against the Fodor line. No, I defend it all the time. Um, I'm against people who are against it. You're kidding me. (laughs) No. (laughs) Have you ever talked to me before I had this podcast ever? (laughs) Yeah, I I said something once. Jared Blank was giving a talk. Yeah. uh, and, well, and he's he a said, deflationist. I'm against deflationism. No, 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 but, but I said something, and you like poo-pooed it by comparing. I poo poo a lot of stuff that you. You're like, oh, that just sounds like Fodor in the evolution book, as if like th- there's an argument that, for it that goes. Fodor said P, therefore not P. No, you're misremembering. You so first of all, can I say what I think Fodor's issue is? Because I also think it connects to some stuff that the Kripkenstein rule-following paradox, 
and like Millikan's, I'm, you know, I don't know. I, I was reading that, that Hoverfly. I remember I talked to you about this in, uh, a while ago that this has been bothering me lately because, because Kripke's argument against functionalism is something that, that I wonder how serious I should take it. And I think, you know, I start, I start to feel like it sounds pretty serious to me. Um, uh, and yeah, but, but, but that's fine with me because I'm against functionalism anyway. Uh, you know, I'm an identity theorist, so I think that one of the things that's good is refuting functionalism, um, and uh, I think maybe Kripke's rule-following paradox is a kind of interesting way to put some pressure on functionalism. Um, and you know, because Kripke's basic idea is that not even calculators are are following the rule of arithmetic; <laughs> uh, that that there's no, that nothing is computing a function. Uh, the full arithmetic, uh, arithmetic function. But but humans do because brains are magic. No, he he no that's no 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 he he's not even he claims that we don't um, even compute that function. So, uh, in fact, that's part of his argument is that you you can't <laughs> you you can't say for a fact that humans compute that function unless there is a designer who explicitly built it into the thing, and so he's he so is not. Um, so you no, gotta have magic, or, or or you just give up the idea that we're that functionalism and computationalism is uh, you know um, something that is going to tell us about how the mind works, how thinking works. Uh, I mean, look, here's the basic argument. The basic argument is you take any given calculator, it can only calculate arithmetic up to a given finite limit because of the way it's built. So you know, take its limit. Like any, this calculator can only calculate numbers that are you know. Uh, Ten digits long or something, because it only goes out that far. I mean, obviously, when you build in scientific calculators, the limit goes up, but you're always going to get a limit to the physical nature of the device of how high it can give you return answers that make sense. Um, so then Kripke's point is, well, then take a problem above and beyond what it can do. What answer will it give you to that problem? And what justification do you have for thinking it will give you the arithmetic answer as opposed to the you know, this is the quiz versus plus or quus right. versus plus or whatever. So how do you know that past that limit, it's not doing quus as opposed to plus? Right. There's no answer to that question as far as you can, uh, as far as the device is concerned. And there's no answer to that question as far as we're concerned because we don't, we didn't program it to compute those kinds of functions, those kinds of values. So it just looks like there's no answer that you can give about right. whether it's following this, this function or not. And the same applies to us. Because we can't, we can right. only compute our. In, I mean, the whole point is that uh, we can only compute finite sums, and so there's going to be some number which we can't compute, some infinitely long number which we can't compute. So now ask about that, like you know, this infinitely long number plus this other infinitely long or whatever. Um, and and there's no, there's no. Kripke says I don't see how you can give an answer to this problem uh, whether uh, we implement this function or not, unless there's some objective thing outside us which determines that it's the case. Um, now, Milliken, you know, and I know Ruth, I studied with her, so I heard her say stuff like this in person, and I've read her say it, and, and, and she says, well, we've evolved, we, we, natural selection uh, produced us to compute this function versus that function, and I just don't see how that answers the problem. It doesn't. Yeah, okay, so, here's what, here's so but that's connected about. to the Fodor stuff, because it's wait, the wait, intentionality wait. stuff, and there's no, yeah. I think you get the same kind of problem that there's no good answer to whether the frog snaps at black dots uh, right. or flies, and it's so, a similar kind of issue. So there's, um, yeah, here's what I think about this stuff. The, the Kripke argument is of a, is 
it's kind of in the same ballpark as like Quine's Gava Guy argument and uh, Putnam's model theoretic argument from Reason, Truth, and History. And all yeah. these arguments are under determination arguments. You you take some um, kind of evidence, either like behavioral evidence or physical evidence, and then you and then you argue that that evidence just wouldn't settle whether the the person was doing plus or quus or was thinking about rabbits versus undetached rabbit parts. Right. And now there's there's two different way directions you could go in with these arguments. One argument is to say, like Quine does, well, th there's no, just no such thing as meaning. <laughs> right. Because he's got this prior commitment to, like, behaviorism slash empiricism, and since so-called meanings would be underdetermined by that stuff, right. there are no meanings. But the other way to go with this is to say, like, yes, there are meanings, and so, therefore, functionalism is false, or behaviorism is false, or empiricism is false. Um, and I, I'm inclined to go with, with the Quinean route. Like, insofar as I find these arguments convincing, I'm inclined to say, like, oh, yeah, I guess there just really isn't any such thing as meaning or, or intentionality. All there is is, the, is the functional relations. So I go. I, I I tend to go in the eliminativist direction. Yeah, but you. But the, how can you? The there are no direction. functional relations. Like what? So what do you mean by functional relations? Causal causal relations. Causal relations, but that's you can't say whether they're performing functions or not on this. Sorry, according to this argument, because you can't define the functions. This function is ambiguous. So the, with the Kripke argument, there's a mathematical function, and there's a question yeah. about what mathematical function. But then there's another way of talking about function. Which just has to do with a, a, a system of causal relations. So this is the it's, mechanistic approach, right? That you decompose something into what it does, and then you can decompose that into the the mechanisms which perform those specific tasks. And yeah. So we we, de we, we decompose the calculator, and we yeah. you and I can agree. It'll take a little time, but we can agree. Like, okay, this is what the calculator is doing physically. Yeah. And what it's doing physically underdetermines, according to Kripke which mathematical function it's computing. Right. And uh, so... But you're saying it doesn't underdetermine which causal relations obtain between individual states of the calculator. Right. Is, I that, thought we is were, that the point right, you're we're making? Right. We're, well, I, I, that was the point I'm assuming. Yeah. But the, but the, the, but the point I'm trying to make is, like, if it, if it turns out that, that these things, these mathematical things are underdetermined by the causal physical things... Yeah. Then, then fuck those mathematical things. And if those things turn out to be Turing machine descriptions of mental functioning, you say fuck that. If if what things the the, the things that that are under I mean, so the the argument here from Kripke is supposed to be look, thinking can't be function or computation um, because you take a Turing machine description of what you say that's what you th say thinking is. Um, well, that underdetermines whether you're doing thinking or squinking, which is something else, and so you can't really... With the Turing machine? So there's a... I'm not sure... Uh, this is an argument against functionalism, not about mathematics. It's about the mind, um, that the mind cannot be uh, captured func functionally because there's no way to make sense of which function it's performing. Because and then this argument based on mathematics, but the mathematics stuff is just supposed to be a general idea that stand in for the you know for computation and functionalism and computational functionalism. So this it, Kripke's point is that it rules all that out. It rules there's out any functional approach to the minds, unless there's an objective programmer or something like that. But, which but, but you're 
But the one look, we're getting. I think we're getting derailed by the fact that the word function is ambiguous. So one view of functionalism is that the, what the what the mind is is just a bunch of kinds of causal causal relations. Yes. So it doesn't matter what what stuff is implementing the causal relations. As long as the causal relations... But, are I, but I know that. I, what I asked you was, well, are you going to get rid of Turing machines and computationalism about the mind on the basis of this Kripke stuff? Because that's what the argument is designed to show. And maybe all that's left are these causal mechanism stuff. But, but you, you, can't, you can't say it's computing and you can't say that it's performing a function in any kind of Turing machine sense. And now, if you're all right with that, then gee, that's what because which because <laughs> which Turing. Be. <laughs> so there's this there's a point that goes that Dennett made a long time ago. That, uh -huh. um, oh shit! Here we go. That uh, the great Satan. So, <laughs> so that interpreting what com computation. Uh, so if, if we found some machine or physical system, there's two different ways we could superimpose a Turing interpretation on it. Right. We uh, is is that kind of the the creepy well, point? Well, what are the two different ways? From the design stance and the and the and the, and the uh, no, no. from the. No, we we adopt the we both adopt the design stance, but we come up with two different interpretations of what the machine was designed to do, or yes. or something like that. Right. That's so that's kind of the creepy point. Now, the creepy point is that there's no objective way to settle whether it's following one rule or another. One mathematical rule or another. One and, and, computational rule or another. It doesn't have to be mathematics. Computational. Uh, okay. It could simply be if the state is in if the system is in state one and you scan a zero, move in the state theta. So, um, okay, so that, that so similar with Turing. Say that it's following that rule according to Kripke because the rule is un, underspecified. I mean, the, so the instance it's, it's similarly underspecified which Turing machine it is. Yep. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so then you can't so say that, that any given thinking or some or uh, right. that so what the Turing is. machine functionalism. Poop on Turing machine functionalism. Yeah, that's what I was asking. You would say you say Krippy's argument causes you to poop on Turing machine functionalism. It, it makes me be a limited abyss about that. Really? That is In so far as I find the argument convincing, I go in the eliminativist direction instead of the anti-reductionist direction. So this is interesting because this reminds me of something that Bernie was saying when he was on, and we didn't pick up on it in our discussion, and maybe one of the things that he said, which I kind of found shocking, um, Bernie. but yeah, but I didn't, I did, I was kind of sort of, you know, stunned at the moment that he said it, and that it went by without me like latching onto it. But here's what he said. He said, "Oh, you know, in the old days, they they proved that all these different computational systems were equivalent to each other, like the." Um, the Turing machine version of it and the other versions worked around the Omega calculus or whatever that was. The, what was it? Not Omega calculus. The, whatever. The Lambda calculus. Lambda, Lambda calculus. Yeah, yeah, Lambda calculus. That those things were equivalent to each other. And I said, yeah, that's right. They proved that. And then um, Bernie said right after that, oh, and what that shows us is that Turing computation is not fundamental in explaining computation. And that's the part that I went, what, wait, what? Um, because I, I had thought that most people inferred the opposite, that, that it showed that it was fundamental, that Turing machine computation was fundamental in the sense that it captures everything. And the Church-Turing thesis, depending on how you interpret that, you know, um, says all computation or anything that's computable can be computed by a Turing machine. I guess you could also say anything that's computable could be computed by the Lambda calculus. 
Yeah, and maybe, so like, that's, maybe that's what Bernie was meant when he said, oh, what it shows is that Turing computation doesn't have any fundamental role to play in a theory of computation. I find that shocking, though. I don't know. Am I shocked for no good reason? Like, is this, is this the kind of similar to the point you're making, that once you see the, the equivalence of these things, that it doesn't really matter which one you select? Right, so like you could describe things using French, or you could describe it using English. Anything you can yeah. say in French, you could translate into English or vice versa. So therefore, neither of them is a candidate for being the one that's the most fundamental, the right. one that carves nature at its joints. Yeah, that's the that's the Quinean point, um, I guess, right? I don't accept that point. Uh, I don't like the model theoretic argument, actually. Um, in fact, I, I find it frustrating and um, annoying and possibly not sound. <laughs> You know, I remember I had this experience in grad school. I was taking a, a, a course with Austin Clark, who's an amazing philosopher at the University of Connecticut. Yeah, I love um, that guy. I love that guy as well. Yeah, he's an awesome guy. And uh, and I haven't talked to him in a while, though, so I don't know what he's up to lately. But, you know, he's the one who got me into quality space theory and he, uh -huh. I, you know, his work on a theory of sentience and that stuff um, and sensory reference. I thought all this stuff was really cool. So I was taking this class with him, and it was um, we were talking about object recognition and how would you build something that could like parse objects. And we were reading, you know, um, Eli Hirsch, his book Dividing Reality. Have you ever read that book? No. Uh, you know, he has this really annoying Quinean tendency to just say, "Look, you know, you, you know this in-car, out-car bullshit. Have you ever heard of this stuff before?" I don't know. It's super annoying. So. So here's the um, here's the gist of it. So you see somebody pull a car out of their garage and they drive off to work, and then they come home at night and pull their car into the garage. Yeah. And then you say, here's a description of what's happening there. There is one existing object called the car, which goes into the garage and pr exists through time, 
and emerges from the garage later, and it's the same car, and that's one way of describing it. Here's another way of describing it. There's an in-car which exists only inside the garage and um, does not exist outside the, car, outside the garage. Yeah. And as the in-car leaves the garage, the in-car is destroyed and instantaneously reproduced as something called an out-car, yeah. which is sort of qualitatively identical to the in-car, but yep. not numerically identical to the in-car, so that the in-car and the out-car are two distinct objects which exist independently of each other, and the door yep. between the garage creates one and destroys the other sort of simultaneously. And so the way I understood Hirsch's point was there's no good reason to choose one of these over the other, therefore fuck ontology. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and I remember thinking to myself at that point, no. Um, oh, but now I'm going to slippery slope you because now is, you're going to slippery slope down to Lumpel and Goliath. Yeah, I hate Lumpel and Goliath. Yeah. But here, let, let, me say, let me say what I said at the time. Because, you know, I was also in Ruth's class. And I said, look, you know, we evolved to track the way the world is. And if the world contains in-cars and out-cars and we track that, then that's good. Um, and if the world doesn't contain those, and if instead it contains only regular cars and we track those, then that's good. Uh, and, and so we can make sense of tracking in this. So this will bring an evolution again back into it. And, this yeah, Fodor's going to come back. And this, exactly. This is why I'm trapped in this kind of circle here, and I don't know the right way out of it, which is why I said in the previous long atemporal part of this discussion we've been having um, that if it weren't for thinking about evolution, I would be a rationalist. <laughs> but it's like really thinking about evolution and what that entails that gives me pause and makes me think, what about empiricism and the my because I feel the grip of rational seeming is very strong. I feel I feel like yeah. like we've discussed. I, I my my rational meter tells me it's hot shit, and I I that I I feel compelled by it. But anyway, so um, I say, but then so you say, what about this creature who's tracking in cars and out cars in a world where there really aren't those things? And I say, well, you know that creature is using representations which are strictly false but in a way that gets it around the world. And so um, uh, I modeled that at the time on the way that we can produce verbal utterances, which are strictly speaking false, but get us around very well. Like when I look into my closet and I see a, a row full of clothes and I say, I have nothing to wear, um, I think that what I said is literally false. I have lots of stuff to wear. But what I communicate or get by is that, you know, um, something useful. There's nothing I want to wear. But so the literal content of the representation is distinguished from the usefulness of the representation. And oh. so I think that maybe the usefulness of these very, uh, just to finish the thought, they, these, these inner definable things, they may be as useful as, um, as each other, but that, that, that does not the same thing as saying they track truth in the same way, um, track the way the world is in the same way. And that would be my response to this kind of... I, I don't see how you get off denying the existence of in-cars. <laughs> The definition of an in-car is really clear, and I don't see how you can deny that there is such a thing as an in-car. Well, uh, it, it, if you're going to try to force me to say that an in-car is a temporal part of a regular car or something like that, is that where this is going? Well, just whatever. Like, what's the definition of an in-car? An in-car in is the object that exists only inside the garage. An in-car exists if and only if there's a car in the garage. And only when there's a car in the garage. Yeah. 
Right, and yeah. you agree that there's a car in the garage, and you agree yeah, when there's a car in, in the car, garage. Yeah, but not an in-car, but not an in-car. I believe that there is a told you, But we told you what the meaning of in-car is. I knew is. I shouldn't have told you about this Hirsch argument. Motherfucker. <laughs> I knew it was going to do me in. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't do me in, though, because what I say, look, if you have a system that's producing representations of in-cars, then that may be useful because, you know, it gets you around the world, but it doesn't track truth. If the world is such that it doesn't contain in cars, um, if the car that leaves the garage is the same as the car that was inside of it, then there are no in cars. That's a matter of truth making. That's why you know this truth making stuff. I, there is a way that it is out there. There either is an in car or there isn't an in car. The other stuff is you know pragmatism, usefulness, epistemology, what we can know, and those all I think oh, well. kind of orbit around what's out there in various ways, but what's out there is what's out there. The world you know, is what it is. Right, and it's got in-cars in it. <laughs> no, because the Quinean point is that there's no difference between the world having in-cars and it's having cars. Right. Um, and I'm making the claim that there is a difference, even if that doesn't show up at a difference in the way we move around the world. There still would be a difference in reality between a world where there was in-cars and no regular cars versus a world where there were just regular cars and no in-cars. Yeah, and I don't get it. I don't. I honestly don't understand how that could be, unless you're gonna hook your truth maker theory onto like naturalness or in natural kinds or something like that. So there's certain yeah, things yeah, that just right because yeah. like so like I, I like go back to the definition of an in car. Like there exists yeah. an in car. So I'm introducing yeah. the predicate. I'm using my meta language. Right. I'm introducing the predicate. I'm giving you a first order definition of how to use the predicate. Exactly. Uh, in car, and uh, so the, there exists an in car if and only if there exists a car in a garage at uh, at a certain time. And, and so the also, thing on the right hand, but, but, the, but you got to add a second. You have to have to add, add the. So you say if and only if. So maybe this captures it. But you have to make sure, explicit that when the car is not in the garage, there exists no in car. Yeah, fine, but I could do that. So I could write. I could write out this biconditional. Yeah. The, the thing on the right hand side of the biconditional. You admit is true, because the thing on the right hand side of the biconditional has it just talks about cars and garages and, and times. Yes, the, um, but that's, and, that and thing now, too, which is makes it empirically adequate for you to get around the world. But it it's it's that doesn't mean that the thing on the left hand side is true. But I'm stipulating that it's true. I'm saying like here's a predicate. Yeah. Uh, it the the thing on the the, the left hand side. Is predicated if and only if the thing on the right hand side is true, and you grant you grant that the thing on the right hand side is true. So I don't I don't get what you're doing with respect to the left hand side. You're refusing to allow me to introduce that predicate. No, I'm telling you that it's a um, good enough approximation of the situation not to matter to what's going on. So it, it's kind of it's kind of like the way that you do what is that called in science perturbation or uh, you know. Um, you uh, you you get rid of shit that doesn't matter for the moment, even though you know it does matter ultimately. And that's like when you calculate gravitational effects on things in near satellites and stuff. You ignore the force of the moon and the effect of the sun, and you just factor in stuff about the Earth and nearby things. And the reason that works, it's not strictly speaking true <laughs> that those are the only forces acting on that object, but it's good enough. It's false, but good enough. And the same is probably true in Newtonian mechanics. False, but good enough. So why can't there be false things that are good enough 
and their being false is just that. They're false, but they're good enough uh, for what's at hand, and but, I think in-cars and out-cars are like that. It's false, but good enough. I don't see how it's false. It's false if the world is such that there aren't in-cars. But I told you what it would be for there to be in-cars. No, you and told you... me what it would be for there to be a predicate, which would be useful for me in thinking and talking and using... I mean, you define well, I, don't, I don't see how that isn't the same thing. So suppose, like, um, well, that's I, said, I know you don't. That's because you don't like truth makers. <laughs> but suppose, I, well, I love truth makers. I don't. Well, maybe I don't like natural kinds or something. A, then cars and in cars have different truth makers. It, isn't the truth maker for in car just the thing on the right hand side of the bike conditional? No. Why not? Why because, isn't that good enough to be a truth maker? Because it doesn't tell you the difference between in cars and uh, cars. Oh, I could, but I could tell you that. Then no, the car, can't. The, the car exists. <laughs> I could define, yeah, define car. It. The car exists if and only if there's an in-car, out-car pair. Yeah, sure. Yeah, dude. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we could do it. That's how you Exactly. So that's how cheap stipulations and definitions are, but that's not how cheap. Or, or we could say but cars. That's not how cheap basic. the world is. I mean, so do, you, can we do a slightly different example? Because yeah, yeah, no, it's the less car, complicated. Uh, Okay. Uh, less complicated in car and out car. Hoax, I don't think it's that complicated. H O A K. Hoax. The hoax is an oak tree and the nearest horse. It's the muriological fusion of of. So. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, now you grant that oaks oak trees exist, and you grant that horses exist. I guess right? I do. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> give, me, yeah. give me the horses and the. But um, and uh, and I say, well, guess what? Like if uh. The hoax also exist. Yeah. And, and you, you're like, well, I don't know. What's a hoax? I'm like, well... No, I agree they exist, but if they, if they, exi if they exist in the sense that a certain conjunct is true. Okay, but, but so it's true... But um, there is no object called a hoax. There's just a predicate which is satisfied. No, or there, there are three hoaxes in, in West Orange, New Jersey. Yeah, I just said. You can make statements of that. Yeah, that could be true. <laughs> True. There are yeah. three hoax. There exist three hoax in West Orange, New Jersey. Right, but there aren't three objects there. There's just uh, a predicate, which is true, a statement, which is true, which is good enough for. Uh, and this one probably isn't. Well, maybe it depends on your purposes, but this one might be good enough to do some simple stuff. Um, I thought so you wanted to say it was false, but now you're granting to me that it's true. The hoax statement you're saying is true. It's true that there are three hoax in West Orange, New Jersey. Um, it, the. The sentence is true, uh, but but it's the well. Yeah, I thought where you're going with is that it's false. That it's um, the th well, I have a complex view about this, uh, so I would say the the sentence itself uh, true. The thought is false. I mean, there's there's no objects out there which you're referring to, but you can define things in such a way that you make an utterance come out true or false. I guess yeah. So I'm. I would distinguish between the, utter, the, the utterance or the linguistic item and the thought which connects to the world in the right way. You don't, you're not connecting to the world in the right way by having that thought. So in the real sense of correspondence theory of truth, it's not true. In the other sense of truth, which means simply defining things and then blah, 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 yeah, okay, but that's an attenuated linguistic sense of truth. So you don't, you don't, you don't think that there are hoax? No. But, there but are I think sentences about them 
could be true. I mean, maybe I go fictionalist here. I don't know. There's a lot of opportunities for me um, to say why sentences about hopes could be true while there aren't any such objects. And so thoughts about them don't connect to the world in the right way. deny the existence of water and affirm there's just hydrogen and oxygen. Water is hydrogen and oxygen. Yeah, but hoax are horses and oak trees. No, because water is a composite bound part of reality and this one is not. It's bound by you arbitrarily because you, you know you, you, you like to play games and have fun. And I, and I like to play games too. You know, we can play hopscotch and foursquare and that's fun. But those there's a difference between the world as it is and you know this kind of cheap trick. Uh, so I mean, look, there's a there's there's stuff out there bonded in a certain way. Water is not just H two O. It's it's hydrogen and oxygen in a complex relationship um, with each other. That's what water is, so and we symbolize that by H two O. Do you know about Hillary Cornbliss's uh, theory of natural kinds? Of course I do. He's the, the, we have the Cornbliss chair in philosophy at the grad center. <laughs> or oh, whatever. he's a he's a the grad center. Well, he was. He was. He's importantly involved with the grad center or CUNY somehow a long time he ago. He left his chair behind. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, I don't know. I don't know how but much he's going to agree with this, but he's got this view of what natural kinds are. Yeah. Natural kinds are homeostatic property clusters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Hydrogen and oxygen, uh, the property of being hydrogen and the property of oxygen, they cluster together in a way that that they continue to hang together. And yeah. Then that allows us to un they that underwrite. They cluster together. There are forces of nature which bind them together. And we study those forces of nature. So yeah, it's not like they randomly hang out because... No, exactly. No, that's the homeostatic part. They're, they're not just any old... Property clusters, they're homeostatic oh, property homeostatic. clusters. Homeostatic. Okay, so is that a, a new fancy word for like the cat? That's his view. I'm just trying to be, I'm just telling you what Hillary Cornblow's view his is. His view is stupid because it's, we already scientifically understand and have names for these words like cationic bonds. We, have, we know how water and hydrogen are bonded together. We don't need to talk about homeostasis. But you what need a general theory of what a truth maker is, Richard. I was trying to help you out. Yeah, well, so I don't. I reject. Think, I reject this. Uh, my general theory of truth making involves science. See my previous comments. <laughs> so it's a. It's only a. It's only admissible to be a truth maker if, if what if the world is. I, I. I assume there's a world that's out there a certain yeah. way, independently of us. Yeah. Yeah. But so how do you? How do you get? Makers. How do you get oaks but uh, exclude hoax? Because the world independent of us doesn't have hoax but does have water.
Yeah, but how do you know that? I know that they're a hoax. I know how to go count hoax. I can measure hoax. Um, I can weigh them. I can make predictions about yeah, hoax. Yeah. Well, I can weigh a hoax. Well, I mean, maybe they're not projectable. I mean, I don't know. It's called the philosophy of science. There's a whole history of people saying stuff about this. Um, so, you know, I, right. I mean, and Hillary Cormlet is one of them. So yeah, the, I said some. Trying to give you a, an account of projectability. Right. Things that are projectable are the things that um, are natural kinds, and natural yeah. kinds are things that are homeostatic property clusters. Yeah, so, I don't know what that means unless you're connected to something in science. Yeah, it does. That, it's supposed that to, was kind of my point about cationic bonding and uh, you know weak nuclear force and these other kinds of things. So, but not everything. Not everything scientific involves cationic bonding. That's only going to apply to some scientific entities, right? So your general theory of a truth maker. Pardon me. It applies to chemistry. Yeah, yeah. but you want things to be that, that exist besides just chemistry. Physics. Right? Biology, you like brains, don't you? Yeah, but brains is physics. Brains is physics. Yes. But you don't like set theory. I love set theory. What are you talking about? What, what are you oh, talking yeah. about? Oh, <laughs> I dude, love it all. Well, here's a set. It's a set containing uh, a horse. Yes. And uh, the nearest oak tree. Right. Call that set Hulk. Right. You don't think that exists. Um, that's that. Well, you just created it. I don't think I it exists. Created. I just, yeah, I just you did. About it. You, you, defined, you defined the set. You said include these things in the following in this container. The horse. set always oh. what the set has been there as long as the horse and the oak has been there. I didn't. I didn't create the horse. I didn't create the oak. No, and I didn't no, create no. The set. the set wasn't there. What I don't know. So what? It depends on how you interpret the axiom of choice. I mean, what the axiom of choice here says that for any given two sets, there exists a set which is. A combination of them, or something right. like that. Um, yeah. So, uh, if, you invoke, if you invoke the axiom of choice, then you can construct that set. That's very different than saying the set is there independently of you constructing it. Do you think all sets need someone to come along and construct them, or are they there already? Um, in my empiricist moods, they have they're all constructed. The world isn't a set of things; it's just a thing. <laughs> So set theory depends on like the mind, absolutely, which is the but brain. That, so first set, physics. That set theory, like I said, is, is connected to the world through us, um, and it includes, for instance, the uh, ideas of containers and things being contained. It can, can includes the idea of membership and of one thing being a member of this but not that, and that's all empirically based stuff. It gets formalized and fancifies. But, uh, yeah, that's what we were talking about earlier. I think all of this stuff connects to the world. No, but, dude, like, so after the Big Bang, but, yeah. but before Earth formed, there, there right. was hydrogen, right? Right. Um, were there sets? No. So sets, no sets until you've got minds. I, I mean, brains. I'm not a Platonist about mathematics, except on my, okay. grimmest, on my darkest days, I sort of think that maybe Cantor was right and, or, you know, uh, Gödel was right and that Platonism about math is, but, but you know, one, this gets us back to the mathematical induction argument we talked about earlier. So one of the things that, that Gödel said about why he's so convinced about mathematical realism is because the world of mathematics just seems so orderly and structured. Um, but, of course, you only get that order and structure if you assume this mathematical induction stuff and the axiom of choice and a bunch of other stuff. So, and that seems to me depend on the world being orderly itself and independently of us. Um, so I don't think that uh, if, if, you know, in my in my scientismist 
mode, uh, I think that um, psychologism about this stuff probably has to be true, uh, oh. and that there can't be an. A, a, this is what I was saying earlier that uh, modus ponens is a product of evolution and. The reason why it's good to think in terms of modus ponens is because so far up to now the world has conformed to it, and using it is is told us about the world. But it could turn out to be different tomorrow. Um, so I don't think modus ponens existed in, independently of us because it describes how reasoners should reason, and if there's no reasoners, it doesn't exist. I mean, um, so that's but that's in my scientismist moods. That's in my mood where I think I get myself into these moods where I think every question is an empirical question, including the question: Are all questions empirical questions? I tend to, you know, people care, um, uh, sometimes lampoon scientism as the view that all science can answer. Oh, excuse me, all truths are scientific truths except this truth, which is somehow not a scientific truth. That is the truth of scientism. I think scientism is in warranted right. by science. I think that the fact that science has answered all these questions gives us good reason to think that it can answer all questions. That's an inductive premise. It doesn't mean I know it. It means I have a lot of inductive evidence which suggests that induction is the only way to know. I think you're smushing some stuff together here, Richard. So, yeah. look, I, I love I love scientism and uh, empiricism and one way to go is to say, like, look, set theory so far has been, like, really massively well supported by the sciences. We need it to do the foundations of calculus. Calculus is really terrific for building bridges yeah. and doing physics. I said so all why, that not, stuff, yeah. why not say that um, sets have existed prior to brains? Because where are they? They're, they're where their members are. No, sets are probably just um, mental states of certain sorts. Well, why? Why would you say that? Because you can't touch. Where where can I burn them? How much can I? Where do they? Where are they weighed? I told you where they are. They where? are where their members are. Um, well, that's ridiculous because then you have. If you if what you're saying is this, no, you want ridiculous. Tell me that there are things that aren't where their members are. That's ridiculous. It seems no, like totally no. Because how do you define it? membership? If, you define if membership in the usual only way. One set, there's one set. The set of everything. That's not a set. <laughs> a set is something that has members and excludes other members. And how do you get that with just a bunch of stuff hanging around? The, 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 in the usual way, you you introduce it. You you no. See, you, you introduce, that's exactly this, right. you introduce you, the membership predicate. You introduce it. It's not out there. Look, here's but here's a way. So here's a way you could. Uh, uh, slippery. I'm gonna slippery slope you. I don't slippery slope though. You introduce I have, physics. Uh, I, I have. I've got. You don't introduce. Gecko skin. Um, but hold on. So look, some people say the following things. You could be debit. Now, I'm not debit. In some ways, I am debitian, but I'm not debit really, um, because debit is Kripke, <laughs> and what Kripke says is that um, possibility and necessity and all this stuff is grounded in essences of objects. And so, um, and this is kind of Millikan too, by the way. So, and she gets this from Aristotle in a way. So all these people are kind of rolled up in this big gooey ball of uh, essentialism. And here's the basic idea. Um, the, these physical objects are the way that they are, and because of that, because of that, they ground certain things like uh, and they exclude other things. Uh, and this is Millikan. So she says, okay, take colors. What it means to be a color is to be one of a certain range of values, red, purple, blue, pink, and also not to be a sound. 
So that being colored, an object having a color, because of the kind of thing it is, already determines possibilities, like ways it could be, ways it can't be, and those and those other kinds of things. Um, so, so if that's your view, then what natural kinds are are grounded in essences, in the kinds of that you don't need homeostasis and all this kind of bullshit. You need uh, things being the way that they are, <laughs> and then that grounding a range of ways they could be uh. or could have been. Like what's what's open to you? What having a property means certain things are open to you and other things are closed off to you, and that's grounded in the kind of thing that you are. So um, if that's what you mean by sets, is that there are groups of things that we would naturally kind of arrange in various ways, then yeah, natural kinds, I think they're kinds, um, but those things aren't sets. Sets are abstract objects. Now, you say they're, why not say they're, you know, concrete objects? I, I mean, I just don't even, group, things are concrete, sets are not concrete. Or if you say they are, I just don't even know what it means to be a set anymore besides a group. It's a collection. It's, it's a collection. Not, it's not identical to uh, so a set that has only one member. It's not identical to that member. It's the collection of that member. That's right. And so it's not just so you say where is it now? It's located where the thing is. That's what yeah. you said, right? Yeah, sure, so it is not? identical to that member. No, why would you say that? There's two well, things in the same place. Oh, Get over well, it. Two things. Deal with it. <laughs> Deal with it. It's just like Lumpel and Goliath. I don't see what the problem with that is. We uh, uh, <laughs> what? Love pulling. Oh look, look, God. look, dude. Dude, look. Here's you're, the point. Your your metaphysics you're is based on what science Epistemology with metaphysics. That's your problem. No, that's your problem. No, that's your problem. That's your there problem. There's a way the world is independently of what we know about it. And if the world is like you describe it, then you're right. If the world is like I describe it, then I'm right. Of course, that's and a trivial. Make, we, no, it's not trivial. That's that's that's. If it's the way you describe it, then you're right. That's just how describing it. Works. Exactly. And the further claim, though, is we may not know who's right here, but there's a fact of the matter. Oh. And, it's, and it's determined by the way things are, the way those things out there are. Right. But how yeah. we know that is based on, like, practical yeah. stuff, what works for and us. That's why, and that's why you get this equivalence of theories and all this other shit, which doesn't track reality. Um, but tracks usefulness, which, according to me, is different than reality. <laughs> which is, but set theory has been pretty useful. Yeah, set theory is. Mike, Mike, point. I mean, look, if what you mean by a set is a natural kind, then yes, maybe those existed previous to us. But if so you by mean the by way, a set something interesting and mathematical, then no, I would say that math doesn't exist until we come along. You know, I have one simple request, and that is to have sharks with frickin' laser beams attached to their heads. Now, evidently, my cycloptic colleague informs me that that can't be done. Uh, can you remind me what I pay you people for? Honestly, throw me a bone here. What do we have? Sea bass. Right. They are mutated sea bass. Really? Are they ill-tempered? Absolutely. Well, that's a start. You know. By the way, to be yeah. honest with you, the you view that you've been defending for the past 10 minutes or so is a view that I'm always defending against Eric Steinhardt. Oh, really? Because <laughs> I, I, I kind of I hate sets. I'm like, what, dude, what? <laughs> Seriously, how do you, I can't touch it. <laughs> Fuck that. Right. And uh, so um, 
yeah, I very much sympathize with what you're saying. That yes, the hydrogen is there, the water is there, uh, the oak tree is there, but the hoax is uh, some kind of weird construction that uh, we impose later. It doesn't really get at what's real. And ditto for sets and set theory. But see, because you can, like, David Lewis thought hard about this, and, you know, he got at this, I guess you got, you end up sort of like his idea that there are some kind of natural properties or some, like, better properties than other properties. <laughs> and maybe those are the ones that show up in our science, like charge and uh, stuff like that. But another way of coming at this, and this is also Lewisian in spirit, is you've got... You've got a bunch of uh, theory that is really super useful and uh, as best as we can tell is true and so we need uh, truth makers for it. There's a bunch of modal truths so uh, here's some truth makers, the, the, the plurality of worlds. Um, and in a similar spirit like mathematics is really kick-ass and, and uh, we, need some, we need some truth makers. What are the truth makers going to be? Sets. They're sets. Um, yeah. And so and that is the way mathematics works, I think. But you, that doesn't mean that that doesn't show that they exist independently of us. Uh, that shows that we can construct them. I mean, look, the Empire State well, Building. wait a minute. We, the Empire That's, State Building is real, but we built it. It's still part of reality, though. It's just part of man-made reality. So sets might be like that. If it, I mean, no, it, this is indistinguishable from a kind of deflationism. No, right? it's Kantianism. <laughs> No, look, I mean, there's one way of reading the correspondence theory of truth where you need it to be realism. The truth makers exist independent of the truth bearers, right? Yeah. The representations and the truth makers are two different things. That's realism. What the uh, fuck was that? Uh, oh, boy. I got to go is what that is. <laughs>
Mind.